Welcome to SickCast, brought to you by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path. Hello, Guru Fateh. Welcome to the SickCast. My name is Manpreet Singh. Thank you for being with us. Today, we want to talk about Afghanistan and Afghanistan today, really. And with me, I have Asha Kaur from Sick Research Institute. Asha, thank you. Thank you for your time. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So Ashikar, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm sure listeners are probably wondering why we want to talk to you about this. And we definitely wanted to get your perspective on this. So please just do a little introduction and we'll get into today's topic. All right. Yeah. Um, so the Afghan Sikh community has been a big part of my life for the past few years. Um, in 2017, I went to Delhi to conduct field work uh, where I interviewed members of the refugee community living there. I spoke to 50 or 60 Afghan Sikhs in my time there and condu- conducted 30 official in-depth interviews, both about uh, their experiences with war and migration in Afghanistan and then as well as the refugee experience as an Afghan Sikh living in Delhi in India. I conducted the interviews in Persian for the most part. And since then, I have kind of built out this community network of Afghan Sikhs that are really working on the issue on an ongoing basis uh, in the diaspora, on the ground, and trying to build a safe future for their community. Got it. Okay, great. And so let's talk about Afghanistan today. And also before we begin that, I think a lot of Sikhs want to know and non-Sikhs who are listening to this, um, a little bit about the history of of, of Sikhs in Afghanistan and Afghanistan itself. So could you please shed some light in there? Yeah. So I think the most important place to start, um, and I think this has gotten better with this iteration of focus on the Afghan Sikh community is that this is not a diaspora community in Afghanistan. Uh, these are indigenous Afghan people and their origins come from the origins of Sikhi itself. So if you ask Afghan Sikhs, you know, how far back does your history extend? They'll say, you know, just as far back as my countrymen and What the most common consensus in the oral history is, is that there were many Buddhists and Hindus that were largely driven to the margins of society and lived in sort of an underground manner for a few centuries after the institutionalization of Islam under the Ghaznavid dynasty. And when Guru Nanak Sahib passed through Afghanistan on his travels, the Shabbat he revealed and his interactions with the locals inspired the creation of dharmshalas or sanctuaries for non-Muslims to live more freely and openly. And as a result, a group of people joined Sikhi. So this is not um, a group of people that is a part of the narrative of the history of India and Pakistan, which I think a lot of people, it's it's easy to hear that, 
But I think for six, for those of us that are really tied to Punjab and so much of our history, our interactions, our assumptions, how we relate to geopolitics has to do with Punjab, it can be hard to recognize that this is a different story. And it can be hard not to project our own assumptions from our own histories onto another group that honestly is sometimes completely unaware of some of the discourses we find to be normalized in the Sikh community. That, oh, everyone has an opinion on XYZ Punjabi issue. Afghan Sikhs are oftentimes saying to me, I don't, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't know about that issue. Um, I don't know that history. Uh, I was joking with uh, someone I'm working with on the phone the other day. I said something about an Adar card. And he goes, what's an Adar card? I don't, know, I don't know what these things are. And everyone sometimes assumes that we would know these, these politics and these policies. Um, so, that, so this history is long. And the other thing is that um, Afghan Sikhs are very, have had an integrated experience as far as feeling very much a part of Afghan history. Um, most people say that the kind of golden age of that sort of integrated experience was in the early 70s under Zahir Shah, the last monarch of Afghanistan. And it is in the 70s with the Soviet invasion that we start to see tensions. Um, but Afghan Sikhs served in the military, uh, were subjected to largely the same rules and policies as others, lived in communities where, though they would speak their own dialects at home, outside of the home, they spoke Pashto and Dari with their friends and coworkers and employees. Uh, every urban center in Afghanistan has a Sikh history in it. Every urban center in Afghanistan has a bazaar that Sikhs and Hindus ran. Uh, this was a community that was the backbone of the economy that had an immense amount of uh, an act, like very active role uh, in production. Um, and so though a lot of sometimes articles tend to say, oh, they had negligible numbers. From what we know at the peak of the population, and this is based on what elders in the community say, there were probably Hindus and Sikhs have been historically and still currently counted together in both the uh, Afghan census and the voting lists. Um, so roughly 150,000 in total, and Sikh elders estimate that probably 100,000 of those were Sikhs and 50,000 were Hindu. And there's also mixed families that kind of fall into this community as well. Um, but these aren't really negligible numbers when you think about the role that the community played in the country. Um, if you ask Afghan Muslims, and I, I tend to ask this question when I talk to Afghans, and I say, oh, back home, did you, did you ever see a Gurdwara? Did you ever have a friend who was a Sikh? And the answer is oftentimes yes. And there's also this great memory of Sikhs having a very visible, central role in the marketplace and the economy and in, in urban centers running shops that were really essential for the functioning 
of the country. So that that history, I think, is very important. I think right now we're seeing a lot of the most extreme end of marginalization. And so it can be easy to forget that this isn't a community that's always had to live in the shadows. Uh, this is a community that actually was at the forefront of so much and was very proud to be a part of this culture. And um, they continue to share those cultural traditions. Uh, an Afghan Sikh wedding has so many aspects to it that a Punjabi Sikh wedding would differ greatly from, for example. Uh, so there is, and there's a, there's a warmth and a kinship with anyone in the Panth, anyone who ascribes to the values of the Khalsa, but there is, again, a different parallel story that so many of us in the Punjabi majority and the Sikh community just haven't seen. And I honestly feel we haven't paid enough attention in these past few decades. You're definitely right about paying attention because the I started paying much more attention after the attack happened and started reading about it and obviously doing these podcasts. I'm learning a lot about it too. But when this happened, you know, your tweet got a lot of play and I want to read it for everybody. Afghan six are not NRIs. Afghan six are not NRIs. Afghan six are not NRIs. I shouldn't have to restate this so often. Gurdwara Harai Saab in Shor Bazar is 400 years old. The Guru Granth Saab in GK2 Gurdwara in Delhi is 400 years old, carried through war and hellfire. Why did you feel you had to say that? Because it got a lot of play on Twitter. Uh, I felt that I needed to say that because I think that India is the most viable immediate location for Afghan Sikhs to go to. But there's an assumption that that is out of, uh, that's because that's the desired place to go to, uh, when really it's the result of this geopolitical relationship between India and Afghanistan that makes the migration easier at the outset. Um, a lot of us know how complicated it is to enter a place like Canada or the United States. Um, and But because of that, because of India being kind of the first step for a lot of families, um, there's been a lot of rhetoric of, oh, they're coming home. Um, and that is rhetoric that the community is constantly trying to address. Um, and yes, it is, India has provided a, a safe first place to go to, um, but then to kind of erase the community's story based on the place that they seek immediate relief, I think is very unfair. And um, I also just, the the Adi Granth, I said Gurgrant and I corrected myself because it's so old <laughs> that it is the Adi Granth, um, that's at JK2 Gurdwara is such a, it was so powerful for me to read the plaque they have up about it. Um, and to speak to people about how important it was to, first of all, the, the power of like people risking their lives to carry the Adi Granth out of Afghanistan and also how important it was for them to, for them to bridge Afghan history with the history of the Pant. Um, and to remind people that Sangat has been global since its origins. That was a very powerful experience for me. It really stuck with me. And I think that we can't adequately serve a community unless we know how they speak 
on their own terms and how they identify on their own. And I also want, I want credit to go to the community itself. I would love for the, the dialogue to shift away from Indian state, Pakistani state, you know, Afghan state, and to the community itself. I mean, that's just like a shift that I think is important anytime we're talking about oppression or migration. Um, because, you know, Afghan Sikhs have been around for hundreds of years. Um, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, as the bodies they are today, haven't. Um, and also, I think from a strategy standpoint, I think people assume, though India is the easiest place to get to, I think people then assume it's even easier than what it is because they assume, oh, well, if these are just NRIs, you know, just use your citizenship or your OCI privileges to get to India. Um, but no, these are people with Afghan passports. So there is still a there is still a system that has to be gone through. And life is not easy uh, when you get to India. And that was what a lot of my research was on. Just how difficult it is from a legal perspective, even if the cultural aspect is a little easier. I spoke to many people who said, look, yeah, I it was it's a linguistic environment that's fairly easy to assimilate to. I'm surrounded by even more Sikhs than I ever was back home. But it doesn't make, you know, starting a business uh have like you have to constantly assert your your legal right to be there. You have to get renewed a renewed approval from the police each year. So it was kind of like an invisible struggle because to a lot of Delhiites broadly, they're like, oh, well, they're so welcomed here. It must be so simple for them. But they're not seeing how complicated that kind of behind the scenes process is. And I was worried about that narrative playing out again because India is again coming up as the most viable first step. And I don't want that struggle to be erased or not addressed once again, because this is far from the first um, wave of migration. In fact, this is the last one. This is the end of many waves of many struggles. Um, even it might be the first time people are involving themselves from the outside in the issue. Um, but these are complexities that have been grappled with decade after decade after decade. Okay, so now let's get to what's happening right now, what happened last week. Um, let's talk about it. Uh, any new updates? I did podcast with Harinder what's about the attack. Uh, what have we learned since then? And uh, what can you share with the listeners? So I think I actually would like to step back a, a little bit. Um, I'm just I'm going to quickly run through the history of this of this migration and the various juncture points, I think, for the community. Um, so in the 70s, that's when people first started leaving. Uh, then in the 80s, more people left. This is a very rough generalization. There are always outlying exceptions. And it's true not just for Afghanistan or for six. This is true pretty much anywhere where people with the most resources tend to leave first. They have better documentation. They have better connections abroad. Um, and 
they're have a more heightened awareness of what might be coming next. So a lot of prominent families left in the 70s and 80s. The peak, it might seem like this is, you know, uh, I don't want to say, I don't really like comparing things, saying some things are bad and some things are worse. But I really want people to see that this level of desperation already occurred. Uh, it's just there wasn't a lot of awareness of it. The peak of violence against the Sikh community occurred between 1992 and 1996. In 1992, uh, President Najibullah of Afghanistan was forced to resign and the Mujahideen ran the country and there were competing groups that were fighting for power and control. And six became a huge target in that time. There was an arms race between competing groups and they had a lot of money, connections, businesses, even the shipping routes for the businesses that six ran were huge assets to anyone trying to assert military control. And so this was when six were brutally murdered, all their possessions stolen, kidnapped, held for ransom. Um, and in order to generate public support for these sorts of entirely brutal acts of violence, a lot of rhetoric was spread about six being coffers, um, you know, being infidels, not belonging. And then also, and this is why my tweet is, I felt was such an important thing to say, that uh, there was a myth spread that these were actually Indians. So they don't belong here anyways, and they need to get out. And everyone I spoke to in Delhi said, we did not experience this until the 90s. That is when all of a sudden the word coffer is being used all over the place. And people said it was shocking. It was an honest to God shock. Like it, it was not something that they had dealt with for decades and decades and it was normalized. You know, I mean, maybe it would happen sometimes, but it became an everyday issue. Kids were taunted and bullied on their way to school. Um, kids were made to sit out of class by their teachers who said, well, you're not a Muslim. And this hadn't happened before. This sort of segregation on this level hadn't occurred. 90% um, of Sikhs and even an even higher percentage of the Hindu community left in those four years. It was extremely easy to get to India first because for a few years, the Indian government allowed anyone who showed up at the Punjab border uh, into the country, even if they had no documentation whatsoever. So there was a little bit of like an open border policy. Uh, but a lot of people, uh, anyone who could get uh, to a country with a more firm welfare system, uh, countries in Europe and then also North America did. So the diaspora is very widespread. And things calmed down a little bit in 1996 with the rise of the Taliban, which sounds totally counterintuitive. And I've gotten a lot of backlash on Twitter for sharing this aspect. And I'm just going to simply quote my good friend, Prithpal Singh, who's not Afghan Sikh, who makes films and lives in South Hall. He said, listen, we, we didn't have our freedom, but we had our security. And what's interesting about this statement is that in my thesis, 
which I wrote, I actually showed how that sort of sentiment was both shared in the Sikh community and the broader community of Afghanistan as well. It's why the Taliban have survived. They have this ability to say, hey, you know, we have strict rules, which are frankly oppressive and in my opinion, despicable, but we have an ability to give you security, which you absolutely did not have in the previous era. I mean, you're when you start with the most brutal bloodshed and open violence, it's a lot easier for someone to come to power and say, well, you, you got to be grateful for this. Um, so 1996 to 2001, there were very few, there's very few people that you can find who left in those years because A, the violence went down, B, the community was, had almost entirely left already, and C, because of that repressive nature of the, of the sort of system that did allow for security, there wasn't a lot of movement out of the country. 2001, the Taliban falls. And there's more freedom to go in and out of the country. And that kind of brought this renewed hope. A lot of Sikhs started to come back and started to say, okay, we can rebuild Gurdwaras. We can, uh, some of us who now have paperwork, maybe we could live our lives half in the country, half out. And that era of hope was unfortunately deeply shattered in 2018. July of 2018, a group of Sikh politicians was awaiting a meeting with President Ashraf Ghani, and uh, there was a suicide attack by ISIS, claimed by ISIS just as this attack last week was, um, and it wiped out the political infrastructure of the Sikh community. Almost every, there are only a couple people left who are political representatives of the Sikh community. This was devastating. These are people who fought so hard to get representation in a system where their opportunities are extremely limited. And it was a huge blow to the community. But for whatever reason, and I, and I, I can see why, I think, um, I think that the thinking about an attack on a Gurdwara is so difficult for and is so heart-wrenching i know that whenever i see an attack happen on a gurdwara whether in the west or in afghanistan you know when you sit next time you're sitting in gurdwara you're thinking about that you're thinking about how this is such a important space for us and it's where we feel most safe usually um but i do want people to know that 2018 is when that's when the conversation of are we done here started and that's when hope really got fairly decimated. And that's when a lot of people said, maybe we're done here. Um, so this attack in 2020 is like taking a bruised, bloody person and just like stabbing them. I mean, it is, it is a blow on a blow. Any shred of hope that was left has like really been shattered now and it is unfortunately there's been less opportunities for analysis uh it is difficult to know exactly who is behind what in any act of terror 
But unfortunately, it seems like these attacks are being very wrapped up in grand geopolitical rivalries. And the Sikh community that in Afghanistan, which is small and struggling, is taking the brunt of rivalries between India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, ISIS, ISIS having its territorial dreams in Syria and Iraq kind of quashed. And there's just this t- small community that's already 99% displaced, scattered around the world, is facing the most extreme end of it. Um, so that is, and there's been, you know, statements from militants saying this is about Kashmir, which Kashmiri solidarity activists have resoundly rejected. So it's all, it's really, it's really sad to see that, that a community that was already kind of at the end of its luck is now facing this. So where do we go from here? <laughs> what do we do? Uh, unfortunately, we're also in a, I mean, most of humanity is now under a lockdown due to the COVID pandemic. Um, and so I just want to let everyone know that I'm so happy to see how many people I've actually been overwhelmed and really shocked by just how much solidarity has been pouring in. Um, but we have a big task ahead of us because there's no easy way out of this. Uh, this would be a difficult situation in the best of times. And this is geopolitically, uh, and from a, on a global scale, the worst of times. Um, borders are already immensely difficult to cross and now even for the most privileged we cannot cross borders um so i do uh i do want to try to address that uh, i'm not saying let's not have hope but yeah when people like me when I heard this news and I'm sure a bunch of other six around the world, they're like, okay, we got to help. What can we do now? I went to my Facebook and uh, I know some, uh, some six had videos on like, you know, call your representatives and call who you can. We have to save Af- hashtag save Afghan six. We have to get them out of there. Um, this is something that we have to do as a diaspora around the world. So all these calls to actions are coming even, uh, you know, the Institute had um, uh, Manmeet Singh Buller Foundation, WSO of Canada. And so, you know, people want to help. I know right now everyone's quarantined. It's hard to even go outside your house. So the most we could do is really, just to keep it real, is send money. But where where do we send this money and what do we do? Do we wait? Uh, do we need more clarity? You know, how do we, how do we, get monetary help at least to the people of Afghanistan. Yeah, so I um, I want to address some of the major uh, campaigns. The Manmeet Singh Buller Foundation uh, has done and is doing great work, but I do want to clarify that that work, they were one of the organizations that really had a call to action in 2018 after the attack in Jalalabad. Um, and their goal was to resettle families affected by that attack. And they are still in the process of that resettlement plan. So 
I think that shows to us that even if you have the infrastructure, you have the money and you have a goal, this is this does take time. Uh, so they're still in the process of that resettlement plan. Um, so I, the money they raise goes to that. Uh, we're kind of in this issue where the 2018 chapter is kind of open and now 2020 chapter is starting and there's a little bit of muddling between okay, wait, uh, which side are we dealing with? Are we dealing with the today? Or are we still fixing up the the plan started two years ago? So I just want to clarify that. Great organization, really important work. Um, but that is what they're, that's what they are focusing on, which makes sense because no organization has the bandwidth to do everything. Um, as far as today, uh, World Sick Organization has had an amazing fundraiser. Um, it is still being worked out. What is the best use of that money? Um, just as far as how to a place to look, as far as um, okay, what do we what do we do if we have an interest? Uh, I, Harinder Singhava and I of Sikri, as well as some key. Afghan Sikh voices and leaders have started a small uh, little group and we are creating a website called saveafghansikhs.org that will post deliberately collected, verified information, background, context, and also can be a point of contact if anyone wants to reach out and kind of figure out what we can do. Um, but there are kind of two channels, so to say, of what what people need to be thinking about right now. Actually, we'll make that three. The first is um, helping in the immediate situation with vulnerable families in Afghanistan. Um, that is best handled by people who have an ongoing relationship with Afghanistan. And we have contacts that can discuss that. Um, it, it's, you can't just Venmo people in Kabul. It's like <laughs> a very complicated system. Um, but there, we do have points of contact for that that will be accessible through our website. Um, then you have the issue, okay, medium term, India. Uh, again, still working that out. Um, but that is what the medium-term plan would be. I do think that we need to be a little cognizant of the difference between political advocacy in the West and in a country like India. Um, I think that... So if people are going to come to Canada or the US or the UK or any European Union member state, um, they will have to come to India first, and it'll take a few years for any paperwork to be processed to come to the West. So I think keeping that frame in mind when we reach out to MPs or members of Congress is really important. Uh, but I do think that that's good. People should reach out, um, but they should phrase it that way because sometimes when we don't phrase things accurately, then uh, representatives don't take people seriously. Um, now, as far as India, I'm just going to be honest. I The political context is different the way uh, citizens interact with their representatives is different. 
I don't think the petition strategy is viable. Um, so I would shy away from any petitions that are trying to say, okay, India is going to respond to us because we gathered this many people who asked. Because that, that is just something that operates much better in the way the US, Canada, UK, etc. are set up politically. Um, but we do need to, if India is the medium term plan, there are so many things that need to be done. And also the community that's left in Afghanistan, many of them are quite vulnerable, uh, don't have a lot of, uh, they, they don't have assets. Um, a lot of them are widows, they may not have an education. So there are going to be a lot of fantastic opportunities down the line um, to help people get settled in to where they get them a place to live, job training, skills training, uh, helping people with their paperwork process. Um, I do have to say, though, that this is today, um, April 4th, 2020. Everything's changing day by day. There is no plane that is leaving Afghanistan right now to go to India that will have Afghan sick passengers on it. I'm saying this April 4th, <laughs> this could change, but there is not really a prospect of making an exception to a very rigid national lockdown and visa suspension. Um, so I do want to say that very clearly because I think there are, you know, the rumors float around sometime. Uh, so we are dealing with the COVID issue. It may not be right away that um, people get out. Uh, so I just want to settle that a bit. But I do want people to know that this is, even in the best of times, we would be playing a long game here. So it's okay. It is okay. And I, I don't want people to feel guilty that they're having to participate in a long game and not necessarily the short-term relief game. It is okay. You're not failing right now. You're doing the absolute best you can. Um, so, but if people do want to email the email that will be on our website for saveafghan6.org, we can talk about those short-term channels. Uh, things have to be done on a much more contact-to-contact uh, -contact basis uh, with all the political complexities security issues, all the things that make it impossible to do these sort of things that would be simple in our context. You know, when we do fundraisers, it's easy to like pass money from one person to the next. Uh, it's easy to get things to people. Um, so we're, this is a, this is a learning exercise, but I do encourage everyone to check out the website. I think it'll help immensely. And it, our goal is to just create a clear picture so people aren't kind of having to take bits and pieces and put them together themselves. Just lay it out and then people can make an educated and informed decision in their advocacy. No, thanks for that, Asha. I think that's very important. And it's very important to separate facts from rumors because it's a lot, at least in American culture, that's it gets mixed in very easily. But um, I'm glad that uh, saveafghan6.org will be up soon, you think? How long? Uh, well, I'm supposed to have a conversation today about publishing it. 
Okay. So. All right. Great. Great. Because one of the things that happens is, and um, this might be human nature, but just, you know, I, I noticed this as <laughs> being in America too, like a month from now, we're going to be talking about something else. Yes. And so I want to make sure, and I'm going to try my best and I'm sure, you know, uh, people at the Institute will try their best that we have monthly updates until we get to some sort of, it's not going to be a resolution, but some sort of path forward that's working. So I'll try my best to keep everybody informed and to have people like you on, uh, you know, so we do not forget this issue. Uh, so, I, but I really appreciate your time. I'm going to give it back to you for some final thoughts uh, for the listeners, and then we'll wrap this up. Yeah, I think that's a really important way to end that um, I'm, it, we're, we're going to be in this for a long time. Um, things are going to operate slower than they did previously. And nothing was speedy in the past either. Um, but, you know, uh, I think a lot of us are looking for something to energize us, um, to feel reconnected with the world in this time of social slash physical distancing. And so I think that this is a great way for Sangha to get involved. Um, but I think we have to make peace with the fact that it's it's going to be hard. Um, but that is what we'll, we'll commit to it and, and we can do it and we can re we can rebuild hope that way. And, um, yeah. So I want to thank everyone who is a part of that and who's ready to, ready to go for it. And I think something can be done. It can be done. Great. And I just want to thank you. Thank you everybody on the Institute. For coming together and making sure that this issue doesn't go away and we're actually going to go and find a path forward for afghan six uh so asha thanks for being here thanks for your time your research and i really hope to talk to uh talk to you again very very soon thank you thank you You are listening to SickCast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path.